This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. South Sudan is facing a hunger catastrophe. The effects of civil war and natural disasters are compounded by an influx of refugees fleeing the conflict in neighboring Sudan. So, how desperate is the situation? And who should step in to help South Sudan? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. In the South Sudanese capital, Juba, is Angelina Nyajima, the executive director of Hope Restoration South Sudan, a non-governmental organization that runs humanitarian and peace-building programs. Here in Doha is Alan Boswell, the Horn of Africa director for the International Crisis Group. And also in Juba is Gemma Snowden, head of communications at the World Food Program in South Sudan. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Angelina, let me start with you today. Uh, the World Food Program says more than 7 million South Sudanese are malnourished. The 2 million of them are on the brink of famine. How are people in South Sudan coping with the hunger crisis? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Indeed, the food security situation in South Sudan is not looking good. And as already mentioned, issues to do with the prolonged flood and also uh, we also, we've been having drought in uh, part of the country. So this has made it extremely difficult for the population to be in a position to do normal farming. As we all know, South Sudan since 2019 has a prolonged uh, flood and it has displaced a lot of people. Now, in most cases, we've been relying mostly on uh, humanitarian aid in the country with some uh, support sometime from state level, but then it has not been enough. Because once you are displaced from your own population, from your own household, starting up again is not that easy and it becomes extremely difficult. And when you try to look at also the dollar rate has been moving very high compared to our currency in the country, a lot of population, particularly youth, are unemployed and mostly women that are struggling to take care of their families. It has been extremely impossible. So a lot of burden goes to the eight uh, workers who are working for, uh, to support their families. And also the, the humanitarians that are responding in the country. This has not been easy because the aid to the South cut 40%. So the funding that has been coming to the country is no more coming. People are dwindling all the time. So this is a crisis that we are in in South Sudan. Again, since last year, April, we've been having also population mm. uh, of refugees and returnees that are coming from Sudan through rain and different channels. All these people are coming to 
that is struggling to take care and feed her own citizen. So it become uh, of a stretching situation that we are in, and at long run, it might be a situation that might not be contained. Thank mm. you. Gemma, your organization, the WFP, says that Sudan is facing catastrophic levels of hunger, that 75% of people there are in need of, uh, of humanitarian assistance, South Sudan, rather. I want to ask you first how desperate the situation is, and I want to ask you about the level of food insecurity in South Sudan. How does it compare when it comes to the level of food insecurity in other countries in the world? I mean, South Sudan has the highest proportion of food insecure people um, out of the whole world. So the most uh, percentage, the highest percentage of the population is facing acute food insecurity. So we, we measure food insecurity on essentially a scale of one to five. Um, and the majority of people in South Sudan, around 60% of the population, are IPC three, four or five, with four and five being the absolute most severe. So they're the ones closest to starvation, closest to famine. Uh, so, I mean, it's an extremely serious crisis, and the country has been dealing with crisis on top of crisis on top of crisis, as has already been pointed out. Uh, there's been the, the effects of climate change, uh, the climate crisis, which has caused extensive flooding throughout the country, uh, economic shocks, uh, which started with during COVID and have just... Uh, continued to worsen uh, throughout, and now we have the conflict in Sudan as well, uh, which is pushing people across the border uh, into a country that's already facing critical food insecurity. Alan, from your perspective, how much is the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding in South Sudan due to the country's political dysfunction and political instability? How much of a factor is that? Sure. Well, I, um, I I feel bad for the humanitarians um, because South Sudan has been in pretty much chronic uh, chronic uh, severe hunger for many years, and every year, uh, pretty much, uh, aid agencies have to raise alarms and try to get continued um, um, funding. And obviously, uh, South Sudan is a is a place that has struggled to get on its feet uh, ever since getting independence ten years ago. Um, but for sure, um, this is a crisis um, that uh, very much stems from its political dysfunction, from its botched state formation, um, and humanitarians um, uh, uh, very much are, are, are swimming against the current, so to speak. Um, the, the, the fault of this lies primarily with South Sudanese politicians, which, with a system that uh, uses violence but has also basically stolen uh, South Sudan's oil wealth. But I think we have to broaden the tent much beyond that. Uh, the politics that led to South Sudan's independence, uh, the backing that South Sudan received from regional African countries, uh, from, from Americans that, that got them to independence, and then the failure to sort of follow up to help produce a stable country afterwards. Um, there are many fingers to be pointed around, and it's disappointing that donors are pulling away uh, when many of the same donor countries are the ones who are partly responsible for South Sudan getting independence to begin with. Jim, uh, Alan there was talking about the fact that donors are, are pulling away. And, and I want to ask you how much more difficult that makes your work. I mean, how much of a, of a funding gap is there right now that, that you and other NGOs and aid agencies have to contend with? And how much more difficult does it make the work? And how much more dire does it make the humanitarian crisis? 
there are multiple competing crises all across the world. Uh, donors' attention is being pulled in all different directions. Uh, so what we're finding is that we actually don't have enough money to meet the enormous needs that are in South Sudan. Uh, and we're in, I guess you could kind of call it famine prevention mode. So out of the 7.1 acutely food insecure people, we're actually only allowed to reach, uh, able to reach 2.7 million of those people. So that's less than 40%. Um, and that means that we are basically, as I mentioned, hunger, uh, we raise it essentially on a scale of one to five. Three is crisis, four is emergency, five is catastrophic. So anyone in IPC3, we are just unable to reach at the moment. We're having to focus our efforts on those who are closest to starvation, who maybe can't even put a meal on on the table each day. Um, and even then, the people that we are, are able to reach, we're only able to give them 50% of the rations. That's less than 300 grams of food each day, uh, which is an extraordinarily tiny amount when you think of it. And it's amazing that people can survive through this, but we feel like what we're going to see is just a continued deterioration in South Sudan, particularly with the added conflict in Sudan pushing people across the border. Because the people that we're seeing coming coming across the border, a lot of them are actually facing the highest levels of hunger, and they're the ones that we're, we're most worried about. Angelina, let me ask you as well. I mean, the fact that there is this funding shortfall now, the fact that people are pulling their donations, how much more difficult is it making the work for you and your organization? How much more difficult is it for you all to help so many people that are in such dire need? Well, uh, it's getting more difficult. And uh, if I can bring in the context of my organization being a member of NGO Forum in South Sudan, where we have about 356 national and 112 international organization, uh, when you try to look at the number and the response across the country before uh, the crisis and the funding cuts, there was a lot of um, activities that uh, the communities were benefiting from before. But currently, there's a lot of organizations that have really uh, narrowed down the, uh, they have really scaled down the operation. And as you scale down the operation, bear in mind that the population that has been benefiting through the programming that you have been doing are also going to be affected. And as they are being affected in terms of uh, funding scaling down, uh, they don't have like other options that they are living in. And when you try to look at the site of the youth, we are going to end up having like high rates of uh, criminality in the country because these people are no more benefiting on what they have been getting before, mm. and they have to at the end of the day. So that is another big risk that we are going to get. And uh, when you try to also look at a uh, uh, positive coping mechanism, I think it's uh, humanitarians also need to look at the, the, to map out the areas that uh, population are still, despite the fact that it has been flooded or it also has drawn, how as people that have remained there uh, living mm. all this time and what can we learn from them so that we can use that to, to, to improve our operation mm. moving forward because it's not sustainable relying on humanitarian aid. And South Sudan for the five decades, it has relied on a humanitarian aid and that has really taught us a lot of dependency syndrome where we, it's a struggle for us to get out of it. So moving forward with the challenges we are in, it has to be also 
a learning uh, process and uh, it sh we should take it in a positive way that what can we do in case the budget cut that is, uh, that is going to continue. And also back to the government responsibility because in reality, every country, the responsibility of the civilian, it's the government. So how do we as humanitarian also sit on a same table with the government and try to explain the situation the humanitarians is in, in the country, and what we do as a government and what can we do as also uh, communities that uh, are affected? Because until we sit all of us on the same table, and discuss the challenges that we are going through. That's the only way we can get mm. the breakthrough. And Angelina. the small uh, money that is coming in the country. Angelina, I, I know, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I know that your organization is trying to get vulnerable communities that have been affected by things like climate um, to move towards self-reliance. And, and I want to ask you, how can that be done, considering the challenges that you're facing right now? How do you get to that model that you're working towards? What has to happen? Well, what has to happen, like currently the practical uh, response we are doing is uh, it, it's now a bottom-up approach where we sit with the communities, we hear from them what has been the challenges and what have they also done in terms of uh, uh, their own uh, term of responding to the crisis they're in, and we build it up from there. Like uh, when we talk about the farming, uh, when we talk about the farmers who are doing farming, in the state where we are operating, particularly in Unity State and also in Hapanail, what do happen? Some have taken uh, the flood as a, a positive impact in a way that they are doing a lot of planting of, uh, of food items, the vegetables, the sorghums, and, uh, and the maize along the, 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 the flooded areas, where they use that water for the flood to also use them for, for irrigation. So I think this, I think that we also need to see, as much as initially it was so negative, but now it's become positive in a way that people are also benefiting from it because at least you have water that mm -hmm. is there throughout and that can help you. Mm -hmm. So how do we also make it as a to other communities? The challenge that we've also been receiving from most of the, the people we are saving is they don't have tools, they don't have seeds. So how do we also... Uh, utilize the small resources we are getting to purchase a lot of seeds and tools mm -hmm. and to the, the, the communities that want to do their own farming, get their own food production instead of relying on humanitarian aid or mostly uh, food aid that is not more forthcoming because a lot of places there are no more food distribution that is happening. Mm -hmm. So how are these people going to survive? When mm. we come to the lean season, which is from April to July, where farmers are doing now, uh, the you don't have any food availability. So how do we also make sure that mm. this particular period, we have something that these people can have before the harvest season? Mm. So I think those are small things that as a humanitarian and particularly as a national organization, we work within the communities and we always know what can be the challenges that the community are facing. And we are part of the community. Right. Like my Ang Angelina, when the 2019 uh, flood happened. Angelina, I'm sorry, 20, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. I'll get I back to you about you. that point you're making right now. But I, I need to go to Alan because I have a question for you, Alan. You were talking about South Sudan's backers. You were talking about the political climate. I want to ask you if there are any of South Sudan's allies that can do something concrete right now that would help get the country back on track. 
Well, part of the problem is there aren't many allies left, um, and you can imagine why when you think about the um, the, the donor powers. Uh, for instance, um, uh, they have been pumping uh, billions of dollars of aid into South Sudan, um, as described by by Angelina. There is huge age de uh, aid dependency, um, and the government basically has taken this aid for granted. And meanwhile, South Sudan's politics is primary has primarily become a struggle to see how much oil revenue that. Uh, that all the politicians can steal, uh, none of which gets down to populations on the ground. So obviously, you have very fatigued donors who feel like they've been footing uh, the bills. Uh, you have South Sudanese who have a government who basically doesn't care about their plight and doesn't think it's their responsibility. And it's very hard to find a way out, um, because uh, if you start cutting off uh, uh, the, the food supplies, for instance, obviously that's very bad uh, for South Sudanese, but it's also uh, people have found no way to convince the government itself to start caring about its population or reorienting its politics. Um, the, um, the, the truth is there's probably no shortcut uh, uh, to this. Um, most, uh, I would say, outside countries at this point are essentially uh, have lost hope in the leadership of the current president, President uh, Salva Kiir, and I would characterize uh, the policies of many outside powers who still care about South Sudan, of which there are not many, um, but many of those are essentially waiting um, to see what happens uh, after Salva Kiir, um, mm. who's whose health is known to be uh, uh, not good, and but who could live for, for many years longer. It's hard to tell. Um, but I'd say many are just playing a wait-and-see game. Uh, and this is terrible for South Sudanese. Um, and it's especially terrible that uh, donors are cutting their funding and they're essentially just being left out to dry. Um, and as you mentioned, this war in Sudan is increasing the pressure. I would just also add that there has been an uh, extreme lack of urgency on the international scene to address and halt the collapse of Sudan. They've been too distracted by wars in Ukraine, by a war in Gaza, um, and all of this is affecting the broader region as well. So you have a poll, you have donors pulling out politically and and financially, really, at the same time. And it's, you know, and, and millions of lives, tens of millions of lives mm. across the region um, are going to be harmfully affected. And Alan, when you're talking about wait and see, I mean, the elections were pushed to December 2024. From your perspective, does that timeline actually look realistic? I mean, would the country be ready for elections by then? Could they pull that off? Uh, I don't know anyone, and uh, uh, I and others in my organization talk to many uh, South Sudanese. I don't know anyone who thinks that they are ready to hold elections this year. The by and large consensus is that those will be postponed again. Um, uh, and it'll be very much a, a muddling uh, process uh, moving ahead. Um, that'll be a huge challenge for South Sudan moving ahead. But still, uh, no one really expects any sort of major leadership change to come out of elections. So even that would really hunt the can uh, uh, down uh, further down the road about what mm. actually happens to South Sudan. There are there's. A lot of basic nation building, basic state building that needs to be done for South Sudan. Uh, they united just enough for independence, but then basically turned on each other uh, almost uh, as soon as independence happened. They never really settled on a basic political settlement, um, and there's almost no infrastructure or formal economy. Uh, so, so, so the road is quite steep, but uh, it does need uh, mm. better leadership also.
Gemma, many aid agencies, including WFP, they've warned that uh, unless they are granted more access to the communities in need in South Sudan, that things are only going to get more dire. Um, how difficult has it been for your organization to get access to those communities that most need help? I mean, uh, WFP in South Sudan has relatively good access to communities in need. Uh, we do, at this particular period of the year during the dry season, uh, is it's an absolute critical time for us because it's when we pre-position our food assistance before the rain set in uh, to ensure that the food is there in the communities where we deliver them. Um, now, often uh, the communities that we're delivering to, they are the most underdeveloped in South Sudan. They lack infrastructure completely. A lot of our pre-positioning has to be done utilising the river because there are just no roads. Uh, they can also be communities where outbreaks of conflict can uh, be a regular occurrence. So, so this period of the year is really, really important, and we robustly engage with authorities on all level, national, state, local, uh, to ensure that we can reach these communities. We can have the food that's there, there ready for when it's needed. Angelina, if I could just ask you how the worsening humanitarian crisis in South Sudan may have impacted you personally. How, is it, how has it impacted you, your family, your loved ones? How, how do you deal with it as well? Well, individually, um, I can clearly start first with the 20, 20, uh, 2019 flood, whereby my own office, Hope Restoration in Mayandit, uh, was taken away, it was submerged in water, and we had to move to another location to move the population that we've been serving and also the office. So this is directly as me being a When you come also to issues to do with the humanitarian crisis in the country, it has like a, a, a lot of dimension because from the food insecurity, it also come to sometimes communal violence where population get to be displaced. Maybe sometime with the cattle, cattle, uh, cattle ridings, and uh, you'll add it with the things to do with the gender-based violence, all those things. Uh, me as a person with the kind of works I do and the people that I also serve and my community sometimes, in most cases, yes, it's affected. And when you look at the women of South Sudan, in most cases, all this scenario, they are the ones shouldering all the, 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 the suffering in the country because at the end of the day, it has to be a woman bringing food to the table. And this is a woman that is struggling on her own. So you tend to just pretend you are okay for you to services to other people, but in reality, you are not. So these are people that sometimes they are being seen as strong, but that's just understatement. These are people who have gone through a lot. And when you look at the, the, the response in the country, it's not that enough, it's not sufficient. And in most cases, I feel South Sudan is part of the forgotten crisis. And we focus on other uh, crises that are quite fresh. Mm. And it, it's not how it's supposed to look like. So we need to see that even if there are new crises that are uh, actually arriving now or we are dealing with, the current the crisis that was there before need to be looked at. Mm. Because when you look at the Sudan, mostly on, uh, on the news, like throughout, but, but when you look at it, people are still suffering. Uh, people are still being displaced. People are starving. You cannot even cross from point A to point B. 
and nobody talks about it. When you look at South Sudan, it's a country that we are going to start to have uh, election for the first time in mm. 20, uh, in this uh, in December 2024. Angelina, and it's high time that also I'm sorry the community to, need to look at it. So I'm sorry to interrupt Thank you again. You. We're just we're just running out of time. And Alan, I just need to ask you one last question. We have about a minute and a half left. Um, South Sudan, it was once hailed as a very promising experiment in democracy. Is it now essentially a failed state? Uh, yes, by you know many definitions of a failed state, it was a failed state um, almost at uh, almost at its birth. Um, it's very sad. Again, I would just say that I think uh, responsibility for South Sudan's failure thus far lies with much more than South Sudanese uh, themselves. This was an international project um, born out of geopolitics. Um, it has failed thus far. And um, obviously, the people bearing the brunt of that are South Sudanese. I do think uh, South Sudan has a long road ahead. Obviously, it'll start to address its its many issues, but it'll be a very it'll be a very very uh, a, a long road. And it is unfortunate that we're already seeing um, uh, South Sudan's friends pull out and 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 essentially mm. leave it to its own. Mm. All right, but we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Angelina Nyajima, Alan Boswell, and Gemma Snowden. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Dmitry Medvedenko. Veronica Pedrosa and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Mohammed Usman. The program was edited by Vishnu Sheila, Zainab Badr, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, it's been two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When will this war end? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.